Are you a home educator starting Latin and feeling overwhelmed? Are you a Latin teacher looking for new inspiration and ideas? Or are you a casual learner beginning your journey into ancient languages? If so, this podcast is for you. In each episode, language teachers and experts come together to share their knowledge and experience with you in an accessible, fun, and inspirational format. We'll break it all down for you, from teaching tips, to choosing a curriculum, to staying motivated and keeping it fun. We hope this podcast helps you become the best undead language learner you can be, wherever you are on your journey. Welcome back to another episode of Demystifying Latin and Greek, Undead Languages for Living Brains. Mostly. Yes. We're in the middle of our crazy busy semester slash quarter. We have some updates to general teaching life, general life activities. That's this last week I started teaching the uh, college, college student Latin, so that's been... We've done two days, but it's been fun. I have a really good bunch of students, so I'm very excited. Always. They're great. They're great. Do you do any culture stuff with them yet, or not Not, not in the um, first two days? So far, we have gone on a couple of tangents about etymology, which is fun when you're introducing lots of brand new Latin words, but then... I went and asked a bunch of them, you know, if, you know how many cognates they could think of like word the verbs like amo amare um that was a lot of fun uh so yeah we've gone some tangents about etymology but we haven't really had it's gonna be very interesting for me because i have an hour a day and i feel like i cannot cram everything i want to say into that hour of time Uh, it's fairly flexible with college students thankfully yeah no and there's a lot of resources on the internet so i have been posting you know youtube videos and handouts and all kinds of things on our shared web page so nice uh in my end of things we are nearly at the end of the first quarter there are two quarters in the semester where i am and i'll be writing up evaluations we're finishing our second poetry recitation for the quarter and my greek students on the other side are just beginning to practice scanning dactylic hexameter, which is good fun. We all sort of clap out the rhythm together and recite in the classroom, and they love it. That's awesome. Yeah, dactylic hexameter is fun. The, uh, the meter fun. of Greek epic. So if you're reading Homer in Greek, it's this you know the very specific epic rhythm. Yeah, so- it's the. I think isn't it always said that the epic rhythm has the sound of hoofbeats? Yeah. The students tend to enjoy it. And we've been with the Latin students, I have them tap the rhythm on their palm or in their lap on tables. It gets too loud (laughs) and we tap the rhythm and they tend to enjoy that. That's usually their favorite part of class because everybody, no matter what level they're at, can tap the rhythm along and everyone's engaged. Yeah. And you get to do something physical, which. Oh, yeah. They love that. And it doesn't matter what level they're at. College students love it too. Yeah. But yeah, we're here today to have a conversation about the history of Latin and a little bit Greek language learning. Yes, we'll start with the Greeks because the Greeks 
influenced the Romans when it came to very much a lot so. of interesting aspects of education. So what I want, what I think, what I thought would be a good idea, we'll have kind of a this this episode will have two large parts. The first part will be um, a little survey of the history of education and kind of what all of the you know different eras, what they considered most important in their educations and how that motivated them to approach certain topics. So for example, you know, rhetorical training, language training, that sort of thing. Um, every era has a slightly different relationship to that. And so we're gonna talk about that. And then we will talk about in the second half and what that means for us now and how that can affect how we bring things like Latin and Greek into a homeschool situation or a classical school situation. Um, so yeah, I thought Plus, it was in this context, we're going to talk about how the we're, we're starting with the Greek education, because, as you said, it impacted the Roman education. Yep. And there's a lot of philosophy behind why did the Romans inherit this from the Greeks and why did other people inherit this from the Romans? Why was it passed down? And it's always valuable to understand the context of something that you're learning. Yeah. And then, yeah, the Greeks definitely came first and had some very strongly developed ideals of education, although not monolithically, because it's, I, I get a little bit annoyed when people ask questions like, well, what did the Greeks think about X? And I'm like, well, which Greeks are you talking about? Because there's the Athenians, there's the Spartans, and then there's a whole bunch of other- Milesians, Corinthians. Yeah, the, um, the Aegean, you know, the island Greeks, the Corinthians, the, you know- The Ionians. Different. We could go on. No, there's so many of them. Like, you know, the Ionian school was happening over in Turkey. And that was like, it's totally separate thing. It was going on for a while. They were even considered, weren't they even considered a little bit sort of barbarian by the other Greeks too, the Ionians? I don't know. There was kind of an Ionian revolution. So these were yeah. the Greeks living in what is now modern day Turkey that had their own little scientific revolution, their own philosophers. And, uh, you know, Herodotus is considered to be one of them. Yeah, the Ionians. Sort of general. Um, but, you know, somebody like Pythagoras, you know, the famous, you know, the Pythagorean theorem and all that, he was doing his thing in Italy. And, you know, so the Greeks of Italy had their own thing going on. So it was no, by no yeah. means a monolithic situation the thing is we have limited information about all the various different city states yeah. the one we know the most about is athens because athens was kind of a center of written information written knowledge literature they love their letters they did and then we have sparta which was kind of the opposite pole and the, and they were very much opposite in this regard because they really weren't fond of writing things down which is part of why they're a, in many ways a mystery but it's kind of interesting you two you do kind of end up with the sort of two poles within what what we're broadly calling greek society if we're you know, including all mm -hmm. of the things that we just listed you know asia minor to italy uh you kind of have the two poles being Athens and Sparta and Sparta had its, you know, they're, they had state sponsored education, but it mostly revolved around the military. So, you know, your young boys would be taken out of the household at the age of seven and they would be 
immediately put into military training for the next 10, 12 years of their lives. And they were just trained to be professional soldiers. There was no reading, there was no writing, there was no literature, no poetry, none of that. Uh, it was just all about defending the state, being a capable soldier. Um, so there's you know not a whole lot to it, which by the way, it's also worth noting that most of what we know about Spartan education is through the lens of the Athenians that wrote yep. about it. So, <laughs> which yeah, take it with a grain or maybe a whole pile of salt. Yeah, I mean, we there, do know, you know, there has been there, I think the archaeological record in Sparta is pretty clear that yeah, they didn't really do much besides their military stuff. They didn't yeah. really do architecture. They didn't, you know, that said it was available to all for the most part, wasn't it? That education, military training for at least the elite well, for Spartans. the Spartiate class. Yeah, the Spartiate class, not Which, the not the Helots. Yeah, they had a very stratified yes. society. I mean, so did Athens, but yes. Athens, we have this sort of stereotype of oh, democracy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And like, sort of, they also had a lot of uh, different strata that, you know, and rules about who could and couldn't participate. So we'll talk but about therein, that. Yeah, therein lies some of the difference in Athens. Yes, it was a democracy, as we say, a democracy for the native-born, land-owning Athenian male citizens. That was for the in, most in, part. in the good times because they definitely in the good times. Several years when somebody came along and just completely toppled it and ruled as a dictator for a while before yes. being overthrown. So including just, the Spartans, including the Spartans. Yeah, it was who just, once took them over. It was just yeah. It was Athens was kind of a, a mess. A lot yep. but, but some of in, these ideas its, are important just as ideas in its heyday and what we kind of know as classical athens with most of our famous characters lysias plato um pericles themistocles socrates all of the characters and all of the major writings that we find in the classical era the philosophy the tragedies in that time education was a private affair in Athens. Yeah, as opposed to the state-sponsored military training in Sparta. So anyone who cared to could, as so to speak, hang up a shingle and say, I can educate your children. And if you paid that person, then they would teach the children to read, write, argue, persuade, be a public speaker, a rhetor, a capable, active member of that democratic society. Which, yeah, that forms the sort of primary motivation of an Athenian, you know, typical Athenian education is, you know, the parents are going to be looking at a son saying he needs to be a capable speaker, he needs to be able to argue persuasively in a political context and defend himself effectively in court. So that gives you kind of a, you know, an idea of what motivated them. So being really good with language was extremely important to them. Yes, and the Athenians had a sort of a more rounded education of both mental and physical, but students would study math, gymnastics, music literature, rhetoric, natural history, politics, all of these things to be a well-educated member of this democracy, the city-state. Which they did have a very, uh, a, a very holistic idea of you know, all, all of knowledge being interconnected. And then, you know, the, the mental and the physical were also very intimately connected. So everything needed to be in balance. Uh, which, they had a concept of arete. 
He would teach arate, which was something excellent, both in a mental and a physical sense. Yeah. So an arate definitely required that all the different parts be in balance. And this was all encapsulated in their concept of paideia. Hence our word pedagogy, peda, from the paideia root. Children, paida. Yeah, the education of children. And one of the most prominent educational movements was that of the sophists, who had something of a reputation in Athens. I would say they're difficult to pin down. They weren't necessarily a group, and they didn't, I don't think, really think of themselves as a collective or a group with a unified... (laughs) No, but they were people who instructed children for pay. They would teach the children... Their goal was to teach arate, essentially goodness or virtue, and they would teach the essential nature of rhetoric, learning to speak, write, persuade through top systems of argumentation. And because this, this all because of their world being so strongly geared towards public speaking and persuasion. Those who could afford it, those who could pay and afford the sophists, were given an advantage in society. They learned the best ways to manipulate this system for themselves. And for this reason, and because the sophists were operating for pay, they were considered, I suppose, in some regard, less noble, less altruistic, and got a reputation both for this, you know, being mercenary, I suppose, and also teaching people to take advantage of the system through that privilege, that financial ability to take advantage in that society. And then, you know, they ended up with the reputation of being able to teach people to argue for both the right and the wrong. So, for example, the sophist Gorgias um, and his his speech, the encomium of Helen, this being Helen of, of Sparta or sometimes Helen of Troy, the, uh, the face that launched thousand ships whom... So to speak. Everybody yes. supposedly in that day and age can considered to be morally reprehensible. Gorgias wrote this long speech defending her and arguing that she was not actually at fault for anything. You know, nothing was her fault. In uh, no way whatsoever. And then he is also supposed to have written, this is far more fragmentary, um, a, a speech in which he proves that nothing exists. <laughs> Yes, and, so Gorgias, Gorgias was kind of the example of the sophist yeah, that everyone was, was disturbed by. Yeah, he was the guy that was like, oh, wow, he can teach you how to argue for anything and convince anybody of anything. I'm like, that's scary and dangerous. And for this reason, they had a reputation that the Greek comedic playwright Aristophanes made fun of. He parodied it in his play, The Clouds, yep. by depicting a character, a young man, Phidippides, whose father sent him to the sophists, in this case, Socrates, whom Aristophanes pegged as a sophist. And Phidippides learned from Socrates to argue both the right and the wrong. And his father's goal was to have him argue with his debtors to convince them that he should not have to pay his debts anymore. But Phidippides came home able to argue anything and successfully, in the context of the play, argued that he should have the right to beat up his own father. So Socrates, in this case, was the evil sophist who can teach your children to argue you into a corner with no respect for their elders. Yeah, well, and people still complain about that 
to this day. Indeed. So nothing new under the sun. Intellectually. <laughs> Imagine yes. that. Many, many reasons that people fear intellectuals of all different stripes. Which, now that we have mentioned Socrates, I think we can talk about Plato and his depiction. His version of Socrates, whom we have no actual writings from. Which Socrates most, well, maybe not most notably, but one of his notable points is that he did not charge a fee. So he did not consider himself a sophist. No, he just went around arguing with people because it made him happy. <laughs> and He was known as the gadfly. Yeah, and he yeah. embraced this identity and effectively was like, yes, I'm annoying. That really what are you going to do about it? We'll ask you questions when you're just out for a coffee and he'll just be like, hey, what is the <laughs> meaning of life? And like, do I really really want to sit here and have this conversation <laughs> i love reading those texts because everyone arguing with Sof socrates again eventually starts saying yes socrates. yes of course of course of socrates. course socrates absolutely. not at all socrates you're absolutely right socrates <laughs> he i could see I mean, how he could ways. be exasperating <laughs> i mean yeah you learn all the different ways that greek has to say yes of course malista 500 different ways yeah anyway um so plato uh, using socrates as a mouthpiece identified and worked out a lot of important ideas about education um perhaps the most famous example of this is in the republic when plato while using socrates as a mouthpiece builds this ideal utopia. theoretical yeah utopian city and what the ideal education of his elite citizens in this city would look like and it's a sort of a, a very well-rounded kind of education that is you know gymnastics which you know doesn't is not as hyper specific as it is now um but just you know physical training as well as you know rhetoric logic astronomy geometry music uh they thought all of these you know he's you know all of these things are kind of a holistic you know, what he would have considered a very well-rounded education um, because to him you know the the integrity of the human soul is incredibly important and you know the correct education will cause your soul to be the most sort of whole and healthy and all that sort of thing so all this ideally i think even plato acknowledges that his utopia is not possible right yeah, it's not ever meant, it's not prescriptive. It's not saying this is what we should do. He was just saying, you know, because I think he knew, like, one of the things that he says in this, in this bit of the dialogue is he gets rid of most of the poets who were yes. the entertainers of their day. And he gets rid of Homer and all of these poets that were telling all of these crazy mythological stories, especially stories that depict the Greek gods being immoral. Uh, and he just gets rid of all of that because he was really interested in the sort of mimetic, the imitation, the imitative aspect of education where you're reading this literature and the literature is influencing your behavior because you are seeing these examples and then that kind of affects your character outwardly. He was very concerned about that. Um, yep. That is something that is a concern that has persisted. For and this, yes. <laughs> Plato went on in this vein to found the Academy. Yeah. And he, yeah, he wrote a lot of his dialogues and educated his students through 
questions and you know asking his students to answer questions and then questioning their logic um a lot of his dialogues don't really end with specific answers no. a lot of them do leave things very open-ended so i think they're supposed to be didactic tools to help students learn how to pursue these kinds of uh, arguments for themselves but he what if i remember correctly plato's academy had free admission and they yeah, they sound- even instructed at least we believe they instructed women at his academy as well i mean i do know i read recently that um boys and girls would be educated not together mm-hmm. but um because you, know, you do hear occasionally stories about educated women um not many not as Elite many as i would like but they did exist so we we do know that so some of them did yes. receive an education um well i do have one a couple of specific roman when, examples. when we get to the romans yes yeah but yes plato founded the academy and interestingly we just talked about plato leaving things open-ended his student aristotle loved to make things very clearly defined and very mm-hmm. specific and not so open-ended and aristotle completely different way following of on him things. he founded the lyceum and he did not follow in plato's footsteps in terms of how he did education yeah he liked things to be you know nicely categorized and defined to the nth degree um although you know it's a little bit tricky because there are some compelling arguments that a lot of the the texts that have come down to us are kind of his lecture notes so there's a little bit of a sense of kind of mm-hmm. unpolished incompleteness yes. to some of them um so yeah i mean aristotle is also famous for being the tutor of alexander the great who was mm-hmm. the uh the hellenizing agent of <laughs> The Spreading Greek China ideals world. across the known world at the time, the which Greek language. it kind of had a double impact, both in spreading Greek language and Greek ideals across the world, and also really influencing Greek ideals by having them come into contact with a lot of different cultures. And oh, this, this is reflected in their literature and in their ideals about education going forward. Yeah. No, but sure. despite all these battling ideals about education, one of their central ideas that permeates many of these thinkers and many of these academies was the importance of language mastery. In order to speak well, you have to think well. You right, have to which, be able to, if you're going to default in court, you have to be a master of the language that you are using. Which is true for you know scientific and mathematical pursuits as well, which they Indeed. were very much into. They loved their science. They, they loved pursuing math. So for them, you know, but language is, and it still is fundamental. So if you can speak well, if you understand language well, if you can write well, then you can do all these other things like math and science. You can do them more effectively. So that was definitely very important to them. And actually, I'm just going to mention here, I will put all kind of links and things that were mentioned here in yes. the show notes. Uh, there is a book called Ancient Literacy, and I did read this, I think, three or four years ago. It's a good book um, that <clears throat> kind of does a survey of what education was likely, what it was probably like in antiquity. Um, the best estimate for literacy in classical Greece was probably not more than 5%. 
Um, and then he kind of does some calculations where the total literacy of the kind of Greco-Roman world increases to about 15 to 20 percent. Uh, it's a cool book. Would totally recommend. It's on Amazon. Yeah. Um, very interesting stuff. So now I think oh. we should get into the Romans yes. before the Romans. Too long. The Romans actually literally imported Greek education into their world quite a bit after they conquered Greece and brought they back bring, all the highly educated people. Yeah, they would bring yes. educated Greek men back to Rome to educate their children, and their children were raised learning both Latin and Greek as That's languages. How they defeated the fees of the sophists. <laughs> yes, no more fees. No more fees. You just come over as a slave. Prisoners of war. <laughs> One of them but came over. It was the same for the Romans. The elites were the ones who learned to read and write. Yeah. Still. But the Roman education system was more systematized, and they also exported their education system into the lands that they conquered. They would bring education and teach the Britons to speak Latin, among others. No, it's kind of fun seeing, you know, the the more and more shreds of evidence that come out of the provinces of schools that they did set up in sort of distant places because if if you learned latin uh, if, if you were a gaul or somebody you know from the germanic tribes learning latin was your ticket to becoming a roman and mm -hmm. they were very they were okay with a lot of syncretism so you could still retain a lot of aspects of your original identity but you know learning latin learning the language specifically you know, being able to converse with the Romans was kind of the key to kind of your social success. So, indeed. Uh, yeah, there's there is um, there were former formal schools, and it does seem like the education became a little bit more open to others. I mean, for example, I mean Cicero was a pretty prominent example. He was from the middle class. So he wasn't necessarily a member of the elite, and he kind of broke into politics as you know the what we call the equestrians, which was kind of their middle class. Um, in fact, this was something that people would throw at him a lot in his political career that he was what they call a Noah's homo, a new man. So he you know wasn't part of the elite, but he was highly educated, and his parents were able to provide him with a really good education. Um, one of the things that a lot of Roman families would do is they would send their teenage sons over to Greece to go study Greek and philosophy. So Cicero did this, uh, and you know this would be very important. He would, you know, study philosophy. He would study political science. He would practice oratory. So again, that language-heavy education was very, very important. Uh, another example of somebody who was not not even middle class, the Roman poet Horace, who is one of our, like, one of the most brilliant poets. Uh, he was the son of a freedman, a former slave. And this, you know, his father, who was you know, formerly a slave, somehow managed to gain enough wealth to educate his son and even send him to Athens. Um, so Horace does allude to this a few different times in, in his poets, his poets' poems. <laughs> it's late. Same difference. Um, anyway, so it does seem like Roman education did kind of expand a little bit 
into kind of the, the lower classes. Um, Cicero, they were better at expanding their education system than the Greeks. Yeah. Well, and uh, Cicero did write somewhat about education. He wrote a lot of philosophy, but I'm going to to bypass him a little bit and I'm going to talk about Quintilian because Quintilian's work, the Institutes of Oratory, um, I think that tells you a lot about how the Romans saw education and what they saw as the point of education is that it's still heavily centered around oratory. It's still heavily centered around civic ideals and being effective at politics and that sort of thing. Um, but Quintilian actually, he, he was a teacher himself and he says a lot of things that I think we would agree with. Uh, for example, he says in book one that you know, learning should be fun for young students. So in book one, he um, he specifically advocates giving young children blocks in the shapes of letters and letting them learn the letters just through play and becoming familiar with the shapes of the letters. Um, you know, he emphasized things also like having them memorize things early and you because. Know, Children do tend to be very, very good at memorizing things when they're really young. Um, you also get a lot of interesting content from him. He's a literary critic. Yes. He critiques other other literary scholars and writers. And he has a book on delivery and memory. He discusses delivery of oratory, which is, I believe, the only, if one of very few pieces of literature we have that describes yeah. the nature of gestures in the performative aspect of Roman oratory. Yeah, which is a whole very interesting thing itself. I mean, I think Cicero talks about it a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, there's one other text of Rhetorica at Herennium, which is, we don't know who the author of that was, who gets into a lot of that. Um, but yeah, they very much saw all of it, you know, the physical and the intellectual being very important, being very important that they were in balance and that you could use gestures effectively and also be able to think well, think well under pressure was very important to them. So um, I'm going to mention here, <laughs> um, I learned about this guy, Martianus Capella. I learned about him a couple of years ago, actually. He wrote in the 400s AD. And the reason why I'm going to bring him up here is simply because he developed the idea of the trivium and the quadrivium, which are things that, you know, terminology that we still use. We still, you know, um, a lot of schools will kind of use the trivium. And uh, so he wrote in Latin, of course, he was still a Roman teacher in late antiquity. His great work on education is De Nuptiis Philologiae et Mercury, or On the Marriage of Philology and Mercury. Um, the alternative title is De Septem Disciplinis, or On the Seven Disciplines. It's a very, very, very weird book. <laughs> I don't really recommend it because it's just weird and it's very allegorical. And it's very sort of neat. There's a lot of Neoplatonism, which is just a whole mess to try to explain. <laughs> um, I think the most important thing is the, the idea of the seven liberal arts, which is, you know, the trivium, the quadrivium. So it's the subjects like rhetoric, logic, music, gymnastics, geometry, um, 
Yeah, that's topics. something that's carried into a lot of education going forward. Yes, we. And uh, I don't think most people know where it comes from. Nope. I definitely didn't know hardly anything about Martinez. Yeah, this is this is a guy who originated that. So it's a little bit unknown. But here's where we, from this point, once we've talked about the Greeks and the Romans, this is where we get to how is it that these two languages, even if you don't speak Greek or Latin, you're probably aware of them. Yeah. How is it that they have such an outsized influence on education as it is today, its roots and its development, particularly in the West? How did that come about? And that's largely due to how Greek and Roman, Greek and Latin were received times and in the Renaissance. Yeah, they've been revived, you know, because I, th I think we've kind of moved away from this idea of the Dark Ages, because that's really not true. You know, because even in what we would consider the Dark Ages, so this would be, you know, the 500s to the 800s AD, roughly, this sort of Dark Ages period. But what was, you know, there was still a lot of learning going on. So there was a constant sort of revivals and rediscoveries of Latin authors, you know, of yeah. Greek authors. And part of how this ends up being carried into the medieval times so well is because the Roman Empire in its many iterations became the center of Christianity, which spread far and wide. And it became a language of Christianity. It was tethered to the church and the church carried it along with itself as it dispersed its ideals and grew. Right. And there was definitely a period of time when, you know, one of the few relics they had left of the Latin language was the Vulgate, Jerome's translation of the Bible into Latin. And then, you know, people, of course, were very familiar with that. They were familiar with the Latin mass. And then there would be these periods of time when people would rediscover Cicero or they would rediscover Virgil. And like, oh, wow, there's this whole world of literature that you know, we've forgotten about, which happened many times, including so like the one of the first most prominent times that that happened was you know, in the 700s with Charlemagne. Charlemagne himself was not very highly educated, but he really, really pushed education in his empire. So this is known as the Carolingian Renaissance, which is a little revival of Latin learning. And there was a lot of art and literature and architecture that went along with it. And Charlemagne was responsible for putting a lot of money and effort into promoting schools, cathedral schools, monastic schools, and Latin became the center of that kind of education. So it was tethered both to the church as the language that was spoken in mass, as the language that we had the Vulgate, the Bible written in, and then also tethered to education. If you were an educated, elite, privileged person, you would speak Latin. Yep. And this was something that allowed educated persons from different places to communicate with one another and have sort of a language of the academy. Right, because during that time, you know, from the fall of the Roman Empire onwards, you had a sort of explosion of local vernacular languages. And you, know, you might come from an area where you, know, you maybe spoke your own native language, but you could speak to somebody from the other side of the empire as an educated person if you knew Latin, because they would very likely know Latin as well. Um, and they would probably all be familiar with the same texts. So it just became a really important tool. So that would be one motivation for learning 
Latin in this day and in that particular era is, you know, it would enable you to communicate with, you know, sort of the educated, you know, the clergy and it would, you know, with other educated people it would enable you to read the philosophy and the theology of the era. Um, so that definitely was a big part of it. And, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a non-negotiable. Um, we have our next our next rediscovery of ancient learning in yeah, the Renaissance. Another one of our rediscoveries. So we know the Renaissance, which <laughs> yes. is really just one in a long series of you know these rediscoveries of ancient learn ancient learning. So you know the Romans were kind of the first ones that were rediscovered. So Petrarch, uh, you know the Italian mm, Petrarch, statesman, yes. philosopher, poet. Uh, went around collecting these ancient Roman manuscripts and became completely enamored with Cicero and Virgil. Like, wasn't he also the one who was supposed to sleep with Homer under his pillow or something? There was oh, some... that was that yeah. was Alexander actually. Oh, that was Alexander, was it? Yeah, when he was conquering <laughs> his, his massive empire, he went with Homer by his side under his pillow and everywhere. Um, yes, no, they all carried um, each other along. Petrarch was super in love with Virgil mm. and um, Petrarch was inspired to write his own epic Latin literature based on Virgil, based on Roman history. Uh, he loved Cicero. He wrote letters to Cicero. They're really adorable. <laughs> so Did he read Cicero's poetry though? Because it's notoriously bad. Probably. I don't um I don't see Petrarch being as critical because he just he loved Cicero that much that he wrote letters to his hero. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but Petrarch was really really important because he was the one that collected all the manuscripts. Yes, preserved a lot of that, and then there were a lot of scholars that started migrating from the Byzantine Empire that brought Greek texts and Greek learning over with them. And so then these Renaissance scholars started studying Plato and Aristotle. And there was this whole debate over, you know, Plato versus Aristotle. And that kind of moved into the theological, the philosophical, there's sort of this revival of Platonism, revival of Aristotle, this thing, you know, this whole thing. There's a great book on that called The Bookseller of Florence. Fantastic book that gets into and also be linked. all of that. Yeah, and I will, that will also be linked. I love that book. Um, and it's it's pretty new and it's very, you know, I really like how it deals with the sources. So anyway, um, I could go on and on and on about that, but mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, the any of these categories, this is what happens when you ask two PhDs about this kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, I spent the last two years really intensively reading a lot of, you know, whatever I could get my hands on on this topic. Um, Post-Renaissance, the ideal of Latin and classical learning remained a vital component of what it means to be educated. You know, most of the educated people had background in Latin and classical literature. So it's everything that you read, there's allusions everywhere and there's mm -hmm. you know constantly just images borrowed from classical mythology you know it's all over the art it's you know the architecture it's, it's everywhere and then you, know, you have authors like Michel de Montaigne in his essays he recalled that his parents were so extreme about 
Latin education that they had their entire household speaking in Latin <laughs> so that young Michelle could learn to speak Latin. It was in that time generally something that was required. If you were educated, to be considered educated, you had to speak Latin. It was a prerequisite for entering college, as was yes, Greek. Yes, indeed. So, yes. And I mean, if it was it was part and parcel of being in that education, most of the texts that they wanted to read for that higher education were in Latin and there weren't translations available. So if you yeah. wanted to be a part of higher education, you had to read it in order to, to learn it, in order to read any of them at all, in order to be entering into that world at all. And yeah. academic treatises continued to be written in Latin in this time. Right. Like Newton's important works on physics were written in Latin. Uh, you know, so much stuff that is, you know, written in this sort of academic, and it's a little bit of an artificial kind of Latin, but, you mm, know, yes. but still, and it a also, we write today, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it had a huge impact on our English as well, and how, you know, something like 60% of our vocabulary is Latinate in origin. Oh, the Romans conquered, they conquered us too. <laughs> and so a lot of a lot of the reasons that English has all these Latin words in it is because of that. But keeping all this in mind, the goal of giving you this long form background from a couple of nerds is to help you think about your own educational ideals because now you understand where this came from, where where how the Greek came through the ages to be handed down to us and how the Latin influenced by the Greek and the Latin education influenced by Greek education was handed down to us through the French, the British, the Germans. So many different cultures inherited Latin through the church, through their academies, and handed, them down, handed it down to us. And it's not an essential part of being in college anymore, but it still lives as a deeply rooted element of our academies and of our language and of our background. Yeah, and we still use, I mean... Latin is still the language of law and Greek is the language of medicine. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of inheritance there that we should still be aware of. So all of that said, if you are somebody who is wondering about how to implement this kind of education in your home, you do have to think a little bit about and you know, what, what is your motivation for doing this? So as a sort of a side note along with this, interestingly, I was talking to my mom recently about how to teach Latin, how we teach it at the school I teach at, and what is the motivation behind introducing the comprehensible el input element and the grammar translation elements that partners with it. And she told me that her motivation for having me learn Latin was partially because she wanted me to be a detail-oriented person who thought about the way my language was constructed in a deep involved way so that when i use my language i'm using it in a thoughtful way that is something that i have noticed in myself is that i do generally tend to be very i, I tend to feel very in control of what i say at almost any given time just because you are so conscious of words you are so conscious of function. grammatical construction and then the more you study Latin, the more you are aware of, you know, how the things that you say can be taken in different ways. So it makes you very aware of rhetorical effects. 
and that sort of thing. It makes you very sensitive, I think. Uh, and this is you know, something that I've noticed and I've been doing this for years. Um, but I do, I do like that element of it. So I, that said, I think the ideal is you do, you know, if you are, for example, a homeschool parent and you want to do Latin in your homeschool, I think the ideal should be, you know, to read and translate. Ultimately. Ultimately. That can take a really long time. So it's not like you can just sort of, you know, open a book and then boom, a year later, everyone's reading Cicero. That's not necessarily no the best way to Not go. with young children, certainly. And I but think also, as, um, as you were just saying earlier, what you were doing with your students, get, having them think about roots with amo, amas, mm-hmm. and where the words came from, even, even a rudimentary education in Latin allows you to reflect on the building blocks of your language and the history of the language you speak. And obviously, Latin is not the only influence on English. Yeah. But learning the influences of Latin on English helps you to think about, oh, there are inheritances that my language has. It has a history. And you can reflect back on that history and think about all the different cultures that have influenced the language that you speak today. And what a mesh it is of different languages. What an incredible inheritance we have. And Latin is a is a avenue. It's a gateway to thinking about your language in a more nuanced, reflective way. I'm a big believer in the importance of context, knowing that you are the product of so many generations, so many cultures. And Latin is not the only one, but it's a great way to get started thinking about it. And yes. it's a great way, even for a young child, to say, oh, this is another language I'm learning, but I'm seeing echoes of it in the language that I speak every day. Yep. No, and that's really fun watching students come to those realizations. I just, they light I, up. One of my I favorite love it. things about teaching is just sort of watching those mind-blowing moments for students. Like, wait, is that the same? Why does it look like that word? Yeah, no, it's even for college students, like, you know, that just kind of wonder of seeing that and how that works or being able to talk about the kind of etymological evolutions that get us to where we are now or or the kind of I like pointing out and I'm currently blanking on the examples that I've used in the past but we do tap into unconsciously as English speakers especially the better you know English we do tap into this weird tendency to when we want to sound more quote-unquote educated we will use latinate words if we are trying to sound less educated we tend to stick with the anglo-saxon germanic words the more germanic words and yeah unfortunately i'm blanking on an example but um i mean if you say that you're going to defenestrate someone (laughs) you sound very dramatic that is uh, fenestra is the word for window but who says defenestrate <laughs> shakespeare does <laughs> they're all shakespeare yeah <laughs> um but anyway there's yeah you just become very aware of those kinds of things so anyway i think ideally if you are introducing latin in the home um you, you can start your kids kind of whenever i mean the the age of seven and eight seems to work pretty well with a book like Latin for Children, which was mentioned on the previous curriculum podcast. So if you want to look at that, there's links for all of those, <laughs> all of those things, and they're linked by age group. So you should be able to easily find where each one kind of falls. 
but you know take take your time through a lot of that early grammar stuff when they're when they're young and in a context that's kind of meant for them and then if you keep going that way there's a lot of really really fun kid-oriented stuff out there for kids to read in latin that's at their own level um so don't try to force them to read you know cicero or julius caesar by the time they're 10 that's just kind of you know in our current context that just does not make a ton of sense um but what i will say is there are actually quite a lot of really good latin novellas out there that are written for kids uh one of them is uh one of the authors is emma vanderpool she has a series of uh, latin novellas that are really fun and really good um she is you know definitely very expert in latin so um and that's just it's a really good way of entering into the practice of reading another language so you know take your time learn you know the grammar stuff however long that takes and then just you know read you know read stuff you, that's at your level when you do get to the ancient authors you can start with one like caesar who's yeah. very clear very simple simple in the sense of it's straightforward Latin. Yeah, it's not like Cicero where you have 15 different clauses before you get to the main verb. Yeah. But when you do get to read something like Julius Caesar, especially if you start younger with middle school, mm -hmm. even with high school, though, just I would encourage anyone who is teaching with this original text to embrace the oddness, the delightful oddness of having a student read that as their language, because how many other students get to read about building a wall and a ditch? I mean, and, yeah. and create, constructing a big war camp and having the baggage train and all that stuff. It's a lot of students, if you lean into how unusual this is, remind them of how different it is from learning other modern languages, a lot of them will find joy in that because, you know, their friends who are learning Spanish are learning how to say the closet is over here and the library is this way and I have a blue shirt, but you're learning how to describe a military camp and military a movement. Whole other world. A whole it's other a whole other time, world. A whole yeah. other world, a whole other set of images. And it's just, yeah, I, I it's unique. That. It's very unique. And it allows students to explore a different culture from a different time. It's like a little time machine that they can step into and have fun with. Yeah. So, so it, embrace the strangeness, embrace the unusualness of learning this language. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a, you know, if you start when, you know, the kids are seven, eight, nine, and you start with a, you know, a nice, you know, and there's a lot of really good stuff out there, you know, good grammatical introduction stuff that will completely handhold parents through it. There's a ton of resources out there for that, that will get you reading, that will get, you know, the students reading and reading stuff that's at their level, get them very comfortable with it. And you can just kind of build from there. And I think that's really valuable. That said, there is kind of a little bit more of a sort of intellectual exercise approach to Latin, which, you know, I'm a little bit less of a fan of if you just want to do it as a way of kind of teaching grammar. I know a lot of people do that and they never really go farther than that. And that's fine. Um, I wouldn't expect a younger child to appreciate that. No. And if that's kind of the goal that you have where you want to kind of teach grammar and sort of linguistic concepts or whatever, um, 
that's definitely much more of a sort of late middle school, early high school kind of if thing. That, yeah. Um, I wouldn't expect a lot of middle schoolers to appreciate that either. No. A few, a few, but many of them wouldn't. Yeah. As someone who works with middle schoolers. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's kind of that sort of intellectual exercise approach to it. Um, and you know, realistically, this is where most people are going to end up people who start start Latin simply because, you know, things, life happens, things get in the way, and there's usually other things that are, you know, considered to be more important, like finishing a math curriculum or whatever. Um, so, and if but, you would, if you are starting with a younger age, as we do have contact information on our webpage, Please yeah. feel free to reach out. We would be happy to yeah, we're recommend. We're always happy to answer questions. Lovely novellas that are delightful. There's, I think, there's a haunted house one that I'm remembering that the students particularly love, or it's a, it's a Halloweeny story that kids love. Yeah, I think there's one. There's like an adaptation. There's a Pliny story where he talks about yes in Athens, which the actual story, like for the actual letter, which I was reading last night, was actually it's really difficult. But there's some really good boiled down versions of it that are really fun. There's so much stuff. There are so many people out there that are spending so much time writing all of this stuff to help people read more Latin. I just think it's awesome. Um, it's and yeah, fun. we will eventually do an episode where we kind of talk about all the different, you know, different novellas and things. Novellas, that, are out there. that would be fun. More kind of fun, modern, um, you know, accessible kinds of things. Ooh, we could talk about. Oh, we'll get to talking about some of the YouTube channels where you can play stories for students to watch and yes. listen to. There's a Those lot are of delightful. Yes. We'll some really amazing stuff. Yeah, we will get to that. Um, and songs, Latin songs on YouTube. Yeah. No, there's, yeah, there's so much. But uh, anyway, so it is important, I think, just in light of the history of it and in light of the you know, what, what your ultimate goals are for you know, your kid learning Latin or even Greek. I mean, we don't address Greek as much here because, uh, frankly, Greek scares everybody. It's scary. It shouldn't. Um, Please talk to me. Talk yeah, to if, me if you're you, scared. I love we're Greek. We're both massive Greek nerds. In fact, we did. We're both. Yeah. My dissertations on Greek. Her cool. dissertations on Greek. Yeah, so it's like it's it's not it shouldn't be that scary, but Greek does tend to scare people a little bit more. Um, I'm raising a terrifying generation of Greek scholars. No, I love it. I'm such a big. They're gonna scare the college students. <laughs> They're gonna walk into college and terrify them. It's no, gonna be I awesome. Be, I think that'll be great. So, um, just you know, thinking about what you want, what you envision, and you know, there are, you know, then think about the ways that we've kind of listed to achieve that. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably where we should, I have no idea how long this episode is. Oh, point, I have no idea either, but <laughs> it's probably, it's at least, there enough, are many reasons. So. Yes, there are many reasons, but this general overview of the history hopefully gives you a sense of what the language has been used for in the past. What we can get more into in the future if people are interested what people tend to use it for today we've talked a little about it already yeah i mean i right now a lot of my uh, several of my college students that i've met thus far it's latin is kind of a means to another end like medical school law school i have one student that is going to go into like a public health related field 
and so it's very useful for that. But there's no harm in enjoying Latin as as its own as, as, as it's for its own sake, and because it opens a very interesting and amazing world to you, and it opens your world a little wider. Yeah, most definitely. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe for future episodes. For more information, you can visit our website, museoneducation.com. That's spelled M-U-S-E-I-O-N, education.com. Also linked in the show notes. We wish you a happy language learning journey.